0: Want to learn how to leverage your marketing to get clients on repeat? Charge a fee that leaves you with money in your pocket even after you've finished paying your bills? And finally, stop working with the clients that you've long outgrown? Liberated Business is a transformational program that combines group and one-on-one work so you get the best results possible. This differs from every other program out there because it helps you make money while supporting your joy and liberation throughout your entrepreneurial journey. Liberated Business starts this June and runs through November, and enrollment is open now. Visit thebadtherapist.coach slash liberatedbusiness to get all of the details and sign up. DM me on Instagram at thebadtherapist with any questions or to learn more. I cannot wait to get started with you. my supervisor gave me the slap in the face I needed by telling me that I was subsidizing my client's therapy by working an extra job cleaning houses. And she was right. I was also subsidizing their therapy by not paying my student debt down and not going on vacations and trying to spend as little money as possible. The point is, if you are having to work multiple jobs, if there are things in your life that you want, but you are foregoing it is because you are not charging enough money for your therapy services. That is literally what's happening, and up until the time that my supervisor had said that to me, I really didn't realize that that's what was happening. Hey there, and welcome to The Bad Therapist Show, the podcast for current and aspiring private practice therapists who want to earn more money, work less, and have a way bigger impact. I'm your host, Felicia, the Bad Therapist, former goody-goody therapist turned six-figure private practice owner and therapist business coach. I'm here to help you learn everything you need to know about private practice and expanding beyond the one-to-one model so you can earn more money and increase your impact as a therapist without burning out or hustling. Using my proven, liberated business method, therapists at all stages of business have been able to grow their income while becoming even better therapists, and I'm on a mission to help you do the same. It's time for you to get your time back and enjoy being a therapist again. You ready? Let's get started. Hello, and welcome to The Bad Therapist Show. I'm your host, Felicia, the Bad Therapist, and today we'll be talking about my villainous origin story. I'm joking, kind of, but we will be talking about how I went from being the quintessential good therapist to the strongest advocate for therapists well-being, starting with my own. So let's get into it. I want to start with what it was like, and why I felt so strongly about people getting help throughout my entire life, and honestly still do, but I just go about it in a very different way than I once did. My idea of what it means to be a good therapist has dramatically changed over time, and that's also a big part of what I'm going to be talking about today. But first I want to start with how I even got into the field in the first place. I actually decided I wanted to be a therapist, I kid you not, when I was 13 years old. I was standing outside of my junior high classroom with my best friend, Rosemary, and we were talking about something that was going on between her and one of our other friends. And I remember distinctly thinking that this is something that people do for work. Like This is someone's job, basically, to have these kinds of conversations with people. I always was so curious. I wanted to understand how people thought and felt. I was curious about human relationships and how they could go better. And I'll get into why exactly I was so curious about all of these things. But that was the moment when I really decided that I wanted to do this for work. And that's the story that I told people for a really long time when they would ask, well, how do you decide to become a therapist? Or when did you decide to become a therapist? And the truth was that that's a really cute story, and it was, in fact, the time that I consciously decided to do this, but the reasons for why I really got into the field are much different than that. They have nothing to do with standing outside of a classroom after my lunch period talking to my best friend, Rose. It has to do with, well, my whole life. So I, like a lot of you listening was the person in my family who was kind of having the least (laughs) hard time. It was very clear to me that people around me really needed help. And more often than not, it didn't ever seem like that help was coming from my dad to my sibling to my mom. And like, if I had the wherewithal at the time, I would have realized I was really struggling too. So really early on, I got good at paying attention to other people's moods and patterns and relationship dynamics. And I would try to fix things and mediate things and make things better and got rewarded in a lot of ways when I, would, I was able to do that. And I think for a lot of us therapists, like that's a very common experience that we've had as younger people, whether that dynamic was present in our families or our friend groups a lot of us have some kind of experience (laughs) of being the person that other people go to for support. And that can become a really important aspect of our identities. It can be where we get, where we feel like we're good at something. And especially if you're in an environment where things aren't going well, or maybe you don't feel good about a lot of other things, being the person who everyone needs or leans on or goes to for advice can feel like, whoa, really exciting and powerful too, to be honest. Like if you're in a place where you don't feel a lot of power, but you're the person who can fix things, then, I mean, that feels pretty good. So that was part of my makeup. I was kind of the fixer. Um, Another thing that's really core to how I was kind of like this goody-goody therapist is I had a lot of issues around money and wealth. I really just had this deep-seated belief that money equals bad. And here's why. So growing up, my family didn't have a lot of money. My mom cleaned houses for like the early part of my childhood. And so growing up, I would go with her to these houses, and we lived in apartments And we would go to these big houses and I would help her clean. And the family might be off doing whatever their thing was. I mean, obviously, if it's during the week, they're probably working. But, you know, sometimes it's like these families were on vacations. And my mom was cleaning their house and her, uh, you know, bleach stained clothes, breathing all these fumes, working really hard, sweating. And I would kind of wander around the house and sometimes help her clean or just plop down in their living room on their big couch, watching their big TV and look at all the movies that they had and the toys in the kids rooms. And it just all felt really unfair. Like, honestly, it sucked. And, you know, I felt as if almost like the people who were hiring my mom were like doing something to her, which is not the most empowered way to look at her decision to Uh, have her own business and find a way to take care of her family. But as a little kid, it it almost felt like someone was doing something to her by her having to do this job. Not only that, but I, I did know that my mom felt some degree of shame or guilt around not being able to do more, being confronted with other people's wealth when she didn't really know how to change her circumstances or she didn't have the resources to do it. I mean, It was a lot raising two small kids by herself um, with no professional training. Like, that was a hard thing for her. And I think I really felt that. So, that from a super early age really cemented for me this like physical, palpable sense that like money hurts, it causes harm, it's bad, it makes other people feel bad. If I don't want to make other people feel bad, I definitely shouldn't have money which was fine for me because I had no idea how to get it in the first place unless that meant just working really, really hard, like my mom. You know what I mean? So I just had this idea that money equals bad. If I have it, other people are going to feel bad. Like It's just not okay. There were a few other things that happened too as a kid. Like At one point, I had to switch schools. I went from going to school in this neighborhood that was like few blocks away from the apartment complex we lived in with kids who were like me. Everyone's dad was gone. Like Everyone's mom was just like working some job. No one had a lot of money. And then all of a sudden, I was going to school in a different part of town with kids from higher socioeconomic levels. And this was not my choice to switch schools. And so I was already pissed about that. And then on top of it, I was like, fuck these kids. (laughs) It's like, I'm from a different part of town. They don't get it. They've got their nice houses with their two parents and their billabong and Roxy t-shirts. And I was like, this was like, I don't know, late nineties. I was (laughs) living in a totally different part of town. Like kids at at my previous school, like were wearing baggy pants and like brown lip liner. And then I show up at the school where like everybody looks like They live near a beach, which is weird because we were in Bakersfield. So we were nowhere near a beach. Anyway, whatever. Clearly, I still have some judgments about it, but I was pissed and I was like, fuck these kids. They don't get me. They don't know what real struggle is, blah, blah, blah. So, right. So now I'm like angry at children as a child because of this. So there was just all these ways that I felt kind of like left out and being poor sucks. And when you're poor as a kid, like there, I think are kind of two pretty typical reactions. Like one reaction is like, how do I get out of poverty? How do I figure out how to make sure that I never experience this as an adult? And the other extreme would be, well, I'll just never have any money and then I'll never be a part of the problem. And that was the direction that I went. I was like, okay, so people with money are bad. There's so much pain in the world. Therefore, as a good person, my job is to help everyone and get super, super good at that. So guess what (laughs) industry, what field that like totally leads into being a therapist, obviously, right? I was the perfect good therapist. Not only did I want to help people like with everything in my body, but I also wanted to do it for no dollars (laughs) and like the mental health complex loves people like me, absolutely loves people like me because we're great at what we do. We don't ask for much. We don't expect much. We're here just to do the job because we love it. Like We're like the mules. It's like, give me all of the pain. Give me all the sorrow. Give me the worst jobs that nobody else wants. I'll take it. Like I was so primed to do this kind of work by my early experiences. And again, you probably have your own version of that Maybe it was even harder than what I'm describing. Maybe it was nothing like this. It doesn't matter. But oftentimes we have something in our history that compels us to get into this career because let's face it, this is kind of a weird choice. Becoming a therapist is like a bit of an odd choice considering there's a lot of different ways out there to (laughs) make money and have a job that's meaningful. And we all decided to do this. So I mean, usually there's something pretty compelling that gets us into that. So this all fits really well with the belief that meaningful work has to be really, really hard. It has to be a struggle. If you have a job and it's pleasurable and it's fun and there's ease and you're making more than enough money, then something must be wrong. You must be one of the bad guys, or at least that was how I thought of it. And that was how I saw my mom working too. It's like she had this job and it was where she would go to make money. And in that way, it was very helpful and it was necessary. But it was also a place where she would feel a lot of shame and where she in some ways didn't feel empowered. And I think this really speaks to something that a lot of us therapists feel which is that work can only be so good. Like It can't be really, really, really good because then something's wrong. There has to almost be a way that we're paying for anything good. That would be happening in our businesses because once again, we are here to help people. It is a labor of love. And if we are enjoying ourselves too much, if we have too much money, if our work is too easy, if we're too happy, if we're too joyous, if we have overflow, then we that's really not okay because we could just be spending all of that energy helping more people and we're so and we're so aware of all the pain and suffering in the world that if we're enjoying ourselves too much we really feel like we're taking away from the other things we could be doing And so we tend to think that we have to do this as therapists, at least in this one-to-one model, that the way that we're going to help, that the way that we're going to be of service, that the way that we're going to have a big impact is through this one-to-one model. And so if we're making more money or we have time on our hands, sometimes we feel really guilty about that because we just see it as time we really should be spending doing things for other people. So it can be so hard for us therapists to get out of that cycle of thinking, that trap of thinking, and actually begin to be much more creative about how we're going to serve people and create an impact. But I just want to say that here. I'll talk about it more later. But that is such a big thing that as therapists deal with. And we need to hear over and over again that we are ultimately incredibly creative and resourceful people. And we can come up with a lot of different ways to support our community, to support the people we care so much about that don't necessarily have to mean that we're overworking, undercharging, and just sacrificing our quality of life. I do really think there are win-win solutions out there, and ultimately, that's what this podcast is about, is helping you find those win-win solutions that allow you to earn more money and actually serve people. Okay, I'm going to get back to my story, though. So that was the setup for how and why I decided to become a therapist. I went to undergrad and got my degree in psychology. I never changed my major. I was a psych major the entire time. Something that people told me would not happen. I heard over and over again, you're going to change your major a bunch of times. But no, I was sure I was serious. I wanted to become a therapist. And so that's that's the route I took. I got a job while I was still in undergrad working at St. Joseph Center in their mentoring program, and then again came back to help with Section 8 recipients, helping them with housing and connecting them with landlords. I kind of acted as a liaison between recipients and landlords to try to get more people in homes in the LA area. And then once I graduated, I moved back to my hometown, and at the age of 22, I got a job in a methadone clinic working with over 75 patients on my caseload and sometimes seeing a dozen people in one day, especially if it was near the end of the month and we had to get our quote-unquote increments in. And to be totally honest, I loved that job and the clients I got to work with. As time went on, I loved the company that I worked for less and less. I remember one day going into my manager's office and saying, hey, I just really need a mental health day. And he completely sincerely looked at me and said, we don't get mental health days around here. And I know there's a good chance that you've probably experienced something very similar to that. This is not uncommon in agencies for therapists and mental health workers to be helping other people with their mental health, but when they need help to hear, well, tough shit, we don't really account for that here. While I was there, you know, I wasn't making much money, but that wasn't a problem for me because I was still very much of the mindset that I was really lucky to be getting paid anything. And, you know, compared to the work my mom did as I was growing up, this, well, I don't know if it was easier, especially working in that setting, but it seemed like I was moving up. I was doing a different type of work. I wasn't having to do physical labor. And yeah, I wasn't really thinking about money yet. I didn't really have a plan for paying for my undergrad student debt. I basically was trying to ignore money at the time. I my Part of my approach was like just trying to spend as little money as possible. I wasn't thinking long-term about my financial future. I was just trying to have enough. And so- money wasn't on my radar that much at this time. And this job really satisfied that need that I had to feel like I was working with people who really, really needed help. And, you know, I was being such a good person because I was doing this work. And I, not only that, but I was hardly making any money doing it. So then I moved to San Francisco and I got a job in another agency where I was working with homeless youth. And while I was working there, I also was a part of helping to unionize that organization before I left and went to grad school. And helping with the unionization efforts had more to do with the bad working conditions and less to do with what we were getting paid. But even so, it started I started becoming interested in better working conditions for frontline workers and for mental health workers and therapists. And I started getting much more passionate about that. So you can start to see like the bad therapist ethos is beginning to enter the picture here. And shortly after that is when I started at my graduate program here in San Francisco at the California Institute of Integral Studies in the somatics program. And that program, the Somatics program, had its very own clinic that was community mental health, but it felt a little bit more like a private practice in that we had these shared suites of offices in downtown San Francisco. We had like this big community room where we could all be together when we weren't seeing clients, and that's where our trainings would happen. And from the client end of the experience, they would call the clinic. An intake would happen, and then they would be assigned to a therapist who they could choose to start working with or not. So once the client got assigned to the therapist, then it was the therapist's responsibility to follow up with that client, uh, schedule appointments, let them know what the fee was, collect payment. So when I was interfacing with clients there. I was the one who was kind of responsible for all, the, well, not all, but a lot of the things that we become responsible for in private practice. And the client experience was a little bit closer to what they would experience in private practice. And so, up until that point, I hadn't really considered being in a non agency setting. But because this program had a somatic clinic and I was really in this program to study somatics, I decided to. Be placed there rather than pursuing you know, a placement in community mental health, considering that I had already had a significant amount of experience in that settings. And what I didn't have experience in was something like this private practice model. And as I was getting near the end of my degree and my training there, I was faced with, well, where to go next? Do I want to go work at an agency again and kind of let go of this clientele that I've built while I've been here? Or do I want to Keep this ball rolling. Do I want to go into a placement that is kind of similar to this, where I can continue to see clients in something that is a little bit more like a private practice, uh, or do I want to go ahead and let go of this and go back into community mental health? And I decided to go ahead and stick with it because I realized that this was <laughs> this was a really great foundation on which to build a private practice and that, of course, I could do that again. But that I was currently really well positioned to just continue from this point on. So I made that choice, and after graduation, I went to this uh, organization called Center for Mindful Psychotherapy, also based in San Francisco. That was very similar to the setup of the clinic I was at at my school, except that it was very it was decentralized. We didn't have an office where we all got to be together. So now I had the responsibility of. You know, finding my own office and finding my own supervisor and things like that. So I got another level of responsibility that was bringing me closer to the experience of what it would eventually like be like to have my own private practice. I also had the freedom to set my own fee and set my own hours. And again, this was just a level of Freedom that didn't exist for me in the agencies I was previously a part of. So I thought, I'm really liking this. I want to see where I can take it. At the same time, I was working for this wealthy couple cleaning their house, walking a dog, and house-sitting for them when they were on vacation. I know it's pretty ironic, right? But while I was in grad school, I started working for this woman who was about my age, maybe a little bit younger, and I just kept on doing that through grad school and then even after grad school while I was building the prototype of my private practice. And after a while, I was just really, really overdoing this kind of work, but I was so afraid of letting go of the money that I was getting from the job. It felt absolutely terrifying. And I kept on telling myself that I'm going to leave when I cross this threshold, when I get a new client, when I'm making, you know, 200 more dollars a month, I kept on telling myself I would eventually stop, but I kept on Getting closer to those thresholds. And I just never felt like it was enough. I was so afraid to let go. But a few things happened that really began to shift. One thing was that I started to really think about money in a different way. Like I started to engage with it. And up until that point, I was really kind of putting my fingers in my ears and going, la, 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 la. Like whenever I would think about money, it was like, I just need to avoid it. I don't want to talk about it. This is too scary. Again, money equals bad. I just can't do that. But I decided to actually engage with it. And I thought about, well, how much money do I need to be making here in San Francisco to live the life I want to live? And I crunched the numbers. I looked at how many clients I want to see, how much I want to bring home, what my expenses were, what my cancellation policy was going to be. And what I saw was really, I mean, now it's not surprising. But at the time, it probably felt at least a little surprising. What I realized is that no one was paying me a high enough fee. Even my high fee was not high enough because if I wanted to stop going without all of these things I had been going at without for so long, I actually needed to be charging more money. And up until that point when I was deciding what my sliding scale would be or if someone would tell me they needed a lower fee, I wouldn't run those numbers like through any kind of a equation. I would just go based on my feeling. Which usually had something to do with how worthy I was feeling or whether or not I felt like I was being nice or if I felt guilty or I was worried about whether this client could continue therapy or not. It had very little to do with the amount of money that I actually needed to live the kind of life I wanted to live. It had so much to do with just feelings and very little to do with actual math. And so as my sense of like worthiness or courage, waxed and waned from day to day, so would my feelings about what I thought I could charge. But once I finally did the math, (laughs) that started to change and my fees became based on numbers and data and not just on my feelings. That's when I created this spreadsheet that I went on to use for the rest of my practice that allowed me to plug in the numbers for my caseload and see exactly how much I was making, what my average fee was, how much time I could take off for vacation, How I could save money. It just was so robust. And over the years, I've improved it again and again. And now it's actually available to anyone who wants it completely for free. And that link is in the description of this podcast. It's called The Bad Therapist Magic Sheets. It's absolutely amazing. It will allow you to design your entire practice from the ground up, or if you already have a private practice to help you simulate changes like raising or lowering your fee or taking time off for vacation. Anyway, This is proof that you can go from being a person who is absolutely avoidant around money, super freaked out by math, and become a person who can create a spreadsheet for other people who are freaked out by math. So there is hope for you, I absolutely promise. And if you don't want to figure out how to do the math yourself, once again, I created the spreadsheet so you can just plug and play. So that was a huge turning point. The fact that I did math completely changed things for me because now my fee was based on facts not just on feelings. Something else that happened was my supervisor gave me the slap in the face I needed by telling me that I was subsidizing my client's therapy by working an extra job cleaning houses, and she was right. I was also subsidizing their therapy by not paying my student debt down and not going on vacations and trying to spend as little money as possible. The point is, if you are having to work multiple jobs, if there are things in your life that you want but you are foregoing, it is because you are not charging enough money for your therapy services. That is literally what's happening. And up until the time that my supervisor had said that to me, I really didn't realize that that's what was happening. I had a client on my caseload that was paying $30 for therapy. And I was feeling really conflicted about it because I needed to be making more money, but I felt really, really bad about raising the fee for this particular client. And then when my supervisor said, you are subsidizing their therapy, it made me realize that the reason why this person was able to have therapy for $30 was because when I wasn't being a therapist, I was walking a dog and cleaning a house and not going on vacation and trying to keep my costs as low as possible. That cost was coming out somewhere else. It just wasn't coming out of that person's pocket. I was going without all of these other things because I wasn't willing to raise my fee, but that didn't last forever. The next major thing that happened is I decided to start examining my beliefs. I decided that I was really going to find out and begin to question this idea that having money automatically makes you bad. As you know from listening to my story, this was something that was very, very entrenched for me. I felt like people, by virtue of having money, just the fact that they had money meant they were almost doing something to me. And because of that, I never wanted to be that person to anyone else. I never wanted to be the bad guy. I never wanted to be the reason why someone else was hurt or unhappy. So I... Just didn't want things. I just tried to avoid being involved with money at all, which is fine if you live in the mountains, truly off the grid. But if you live in an apartment and have to pay rent and bills and uh, interact with money at all, you're just fooling yourself if you think you can opt out of this. Like if you if you want to opt out and you can opt out, one hundred percent, go for it. And I was kind of living in this double fantasy that I was somehow above this. I didn't care about money. I wasn't in it for the money. But the ramifications of having that attitude meant that there were ways that I was ignoring the financial realities of my life. And that was beginning to catch up with me. The cost of saying no to all these different things I really wanted, the fact that i was getting older and had no plan for how to care for myself in my old age and was beginning to be confronted with a parent who was getting older and dealing with those ramifications in her own life it was just all starting to come at me and i was realizing i couldn't be above money anymore i had to actually start dealing with it so i decided it was time for me to find out is it possible for me to be good and have money are there ways of interacting with money that align with my values Are there ways of serving people that are different than what I was initially thinking they were? Would I be willing to discover what those things are? Would I be willing to make mistakes and get some things wrong, maybe make some messes and have to clean them up? And I decided, yeah, I am willing to do that. I'm willing to learn because this idea of just staying small and not moving, not taking risks just was not working for me anymore. I had been identifying with being scrappy my whole life. And something else my supervisor helped me with was really beginning to question that identity and be open to having other attributes besides just being scrappy. Maybe rather than being scrappy, I could also be curious and a risk taker and creative Maybe I could rely on some of my other many gifts (laughs) beyond just being scrappy and tough and hard. Basically, if my attitude before was, I can't make any mistakes, I can't change, it's too risky to maybe get something wrong, my attitude shifted into, it's okay for me to experiment. And with that, I stopped looking for other people's permission and validation to do what I wanted to do. My whole life, I had been looking for people to approve of what I was doing. Tell me I'm a good person. Tell me I'm I'm a good therapist. Tell me I'm a good daughter. Tell me I'm a good listener, a good friend. And Finally, I decided to stop expecting other people to approve of me all the time in order to justify my actions. I started being willing to look to what I wanted and to begin to trust or maybe experiment with trusting that what I wanted was good. And I think that's something that a lot of us fear. We fear that our desires are actually dangerous. And maybe you fear that your desires are dangerous too, especially if you've gotten messaging around that, especially if you've been told to just put your head down and work because everyone else around you has it worse. And what we really need is for you to just, you know, take care of people around you and try to not want things. It becomes hard to believe that our wants could actually be gifts and that maybe the other people around us will also benefit from us having what we want. For me, this was a completely revolutionary thought, and there's a very good chance it is for you too. So that's what we're going to be talking about in the next couple episodes, so I hope you'll stay tuned. Thank you so much for joining me today. I hope you're feeling encouraged that no matter where you're starting and no matter where you want to go, that there is a way for you to get there. And I'm here to cheer you on and give you the tools you need every step of the way. Like I said before, if you want help designing your private practice, make sure to grab my Bad Therapist Magic Sheets tool that is linked in the description of this podcast. And come say hi and follow me on Instagram at TheBadTherapist. That's the underscore bad underscore therapist. I'll see you there. That's all today for The Bad Therapist Show. Thanks so much for hanging with me. I hope you got some gems that you can start using right away in your own business so that you can break out of good therapist conditioning and build the business that you want. If you've gotten something out of this episode, don't keep it to yourself. Share it with one of your good therapist friends who really needs to hear it. And while you're at it, please consider leaving a rating and or a review so that we can change not just our individual businesses, but transform the mental health system that got us here in the first place. Thank you so much. I'll see you next week for more private practice and coaching tips. Remember, bad therapists make the best therapists.